in the interests of keeping things rolling along and adhering to our wonderful track record so far of keeping pretty much to time, I think we should start the session. Um, now this afternoon's session, this first session this afternoon is entitled Economic Policy Challenges and I can't help but think after what we heard this morning that at the very least it ought to be called Economic Policy Challenges Round 2 because I don't think we could come away from this morning without having a sense that we've already been introducing some pretty severe challenges to policy makers and the people of PNG. But we're going to look at some slightly different issues this time round. Uh, possibly moving more into the domain of, of macroeconomics and uh, the economics of development and the economics of managing and regulating the private sector. So our first speaker this afternoon is going to be Aaron Batten, who is the resident economist <coughs> of the ADB in Port Moresby, Mission. He, uh, like so many people here, is a, is a graduate of the Colton School at the ANU. It's terrific having him back again. Um, I understand he used to work in the Australian Treasury. I don't particularly hold that against him, but maybe <laughs> some will. So, Aaron, over to you. Thanks very much. Um, very grateful to be here today. The topic of um, my presentation today is looking at PNG's export trends. And uh, this uh, analysis essentially comes out of um, the latest issue of the Pacific Economic Monitor, and the theme for that was regional cooperation and integration. When it comes to PNG's exports, um, we actually know a little bit about them, but, but not a huge amount. So the PNG government produces data on its exports by country, and it also produces data on exports by commodity. Um, so we have a good idea about who PNG is exporting to and what it's exporting, but we don't know which products it's selling to which countries. So the aim of um, the analysis of, of what I've sort of did in the Pacific Economic Monitor was <clears throat> to look at PNG's trading partners, their import data, and to figure out what PNG is selling to them by their import data, and to collate all of that together to get a picture of where PNG is exporting and which products are going to which countries. And, and the aim of this is to try and give us a bit more of a detailed, nuanced understanding of really what the last decade of economic growth has meant for the PNG economy in terms of its export linkages, um, whether PNG businesses have been integrating into Factory Asia, as we've been calling it, or whether new sort of more interesting partnerships have been opening up. And then also just to try and ask ourselves what implications these trends might have for thinking about future development prospects and even trade agreements, um, which we've already discussed during these sessions. So the background and I guess the motivation for this analysis is this story that we're all quite familiar with of a huge boom in PNG's exports over the last decade. So since 2000, um, PNG's export sales have increased from about 1.6 billion in 2000 uh, and two to 7.5 billion in 2012. They've dropped off a little bit since then based on the decline in commodity prices, but they're still very, very high by, by historical standards. Also during this uh, phase of export boom, the share of exports to total GDP has increased from 40% of GDP to 51% of GDP. So PNG, as a developing economy, is becoming more export dependent, and it's been a key factor in leading the growth process for the country. The other part of the story that we're all very familiar with, I think, is in terms of what has comprised PNG's exports. Gold, copper and oil are obviously the big three and they make up the vast majority of PNG's exports and, and we sort of knew this already. 
And by 2012, the sales of these big three commodities, as, as we call them, were contributing roughly two-thirds of P&G's total exports into uh, international markets, or about $4.5 billion, which is very significant. At the same time, we also had a rough idea of where P&G's exports were going. We know that um, a very large share goes to Australia, um, and that is in part due to its very strong commercial links with P&G's mining and, and petroleum companies. So all of those commodities are, are brought down to Australia before on-selling into <coughs> other international markets. And also we know that Japan has strong linkages in those markets as well. So it's no surprise that when we do the breakdown of, of total exports by country, we see that Japan and Australia comprise about three quarters of PNG's total exports. Now, at the front of it, this kind of paints quite a, a pessimistic scenario of PNG's trade integration with, with Asia and with other, with other markets. So we see excluding Japan about over the, over the decade, about 20% of exports have been sold to Asia, which given that it's becoming the largest export destination on earth, is uh, perhaps not a positive trend. And then whilst other markets, very big markets, North America and Europe, accounted for less than 15% of total sales across that picture. So this short story, I guess, is, a, is the story that uh, we were already familiar with within ADB. The question that I wanted to, to ask, um, well, exactly how much are commodities driving those trade trends? And, and how well is PNG performing for non-mineral commodities? So if we take out gold, copper and oil from all of those trade relationships, what's actually going on in the PNG economy? Because from a development perspective, that's actually a lot more interesting than just where it ships its gold. So this chart here is, is the first one that, that I'll talk about. And this shows PNG's trade relationships across the world once we've stripped out of total trade gold, copper and oil. And it's actually really interesting because it shows a completely different picture of the PNG export economy than what emerges when you're talking about commodity-based currency. So we see that the largest uh, export destination for PNG is actually Asia, once you take out gold, copper and oil. And it's boomed significantly over the last decade. It's now up just over a billion US dollars a year. The second biggest export market for PNG is Europe. And that's also been booming over recent years. And I'm going to go into each of these markets in more detail so that we can talk about what it's been selling to these markets and, and which countries in particular are the most important. The other interesting uh, trend to emerge is actually the US is now becoming a very significant trade partner. But also that once you strip out gold, copper and oil, you see where Australia is at the very bottom of this chart. That's the blue bar at the bottom there. Australia is a very minor export destination for the PNG economy once you take out those mineral economies. And this is, I'll talk about this at the end, very important for thinking about how the PNG government is thinking about forming new trade partnerships, particularly when we think about PESA Plus and where its actual trade benefits can be derived from the region. The, the Asian region and the European region are buying a lot more of PNG's non-mineral products. So this is predominantly agriculture, forestry, fisheries. So let's go into this in, in a little bit more detail. So what are we selling to Asia, or who are we selling to in Asia? This chart here shows uh, China, uh, which is the red line which is um, actually bigger than all of the rest of Asia combined as an export destination for non-mineral products. So don't forget that all of the future types don't include gold, copper and oil. So China dominates uh, non-mineral Asian exports, but also we see Malaysia, Thailand, Philippines, Indonesia and India also growing as significant export destinations for PNG producers. Another interesting trend that's emerged in the Asian market has been that uh, Japan 
as a source of non-mineral purchases has also been declining similarly to Australia once you strip out those uh, mineral commodities. So what have we been selling into Asian markets is, is the next question. And the, the short answer to that is logs. So 65% of PNG sales into Asia have been logs or log products. Um, this data, it's also useful to note, comes predominantly from Comtrade and from the recipient's reporting of, of imports. It doesn't necessarily match up with what the PNG government is reporting as, as exports of logs. So there is discrepancies there and it should be taken at face value. <laughs> There are some other significant markets um, that PNG is exporting into Asia. Um, the total value of trade, as I mentioned, is just over a billion dollars. The 2012 figures is only partial data, so that I could only get data for a number of countries for 2012. That's why it's low. It's not that trade has dropped off. So the other question that I, I sort of wanted to ask for Asian data is, well, if we exclude log, which are mostly going to China, um, what else is going on within the Asian, Asian markets? And, and this chart here shows exports to the Asian region excluding uh, minerals and logs. So it's all the other agricultural, fisheries, fisheries products that are, that are going on. And again, you know, there's a very interesting story of growth of sales for PNG's agricultural producers into Asian markets. We've seen a very big boost in coffee, tea, cocoa, spices going into these markets, along with fish and crustaceans going, going into Asia. Vegetable oils, uh, which is the, the bar in red, which many people probably associate with uh, palm oil and copra, actually don't go into Asian markets. That's quite interesting. Many people assume that a lot of that goes into Malaysia and Indonesia, but it doesn't, in fact. And as I'll talk about, that's more a European story than an Asian story. Um, there's also a few other smaller um, processed goods that are going into the market, things like tuna, which are going into there. So coming to Europe... Um, what, how can we explain such a rapid growth in sales to Europe? And uh, there's four countries in particular that PNG has been expanding its trade links with in Europe. Um, the largest of these is Germany. They've become a very significant purchaser of PNG commodities. Um, total sales to Germany are about 400, that should say millions, not billions, my apologies, uh, $400 million a year. Um, the Netherlands is also a major purchaser of PNG goods now, as is the UK, and, and also to a lesser bit. The growing extent, Italy. So what are we actually selling to these markets is the next question. A large part of uh, the growth into European markets has been around the oil palm plantations that PNG has been expanding production of, as well as around coffee, tea, cocoa. Um, PNG is now a major supplier to Ferrero Rocher, so when you're eating your fine chocolates, you should think about PNG and the supply markets that have been opened up between the South Pacific and and into Europe, which is a, is a major success story for, for the country. Also, fish and crustaceans and, and other commodities have also contributed to those growing sales value into the European region. Other markets also are becoming uh, important for PNG in the global stage. The US is a very interesting one. Um, that is predominantly built around coffee. Um, PNG's high quality coffee from the Highlands region is being sold at a lot of value into the US markets, and a lot of the big US suppliers are now demanding that PNG coffee for specialty coffee stores in, in the United States. So that's been another big uh, success story. There's also, to a lesser extent, been coffee, cocoa, also going into those markets. <laughs> like a disco in here. <laughs> so, uh, so what do we conclude for, from this short, I guess, sort of ad hoc analysis on, on what's going on um, 
on with PNG's exports. So I think the first point to make is that if we just look at uh, the headline figures, it doesn't give a particularly rosy picture about PNG's exports. But if, if we dig a little bit deeper, there actually is quite an optimistic scenario that's emerged on the ability of PNG agriculture and, and aquaculture producers to try and integrate themselves both with Asia but beyond into Europe and, and the high-class uh, US markets where there's a real value-added um, or a premium put on, on PNG products. PNG has been very active in, in opening up these new markets um, and also in reducing its traditional reliance on its traditional export partners like Australia and Japan outside of those commodity products. The other interesting point to note, and that's what this chart shows, <clears throat> is that the sales in the non-mineral commodities over the last decade have been driven not just by price increases but also by volume increases, whereas sales of, of mineral commodities have been driven exclusively by prices. What this chart here shows is an is a index of non-mineral um, export volumes, which is in red. So as you can see, there's been a constant trending up of export volumes for PNG's agricultural commodities, whilst gold, copper and oil have all trended downwards. So when we think about growth in the PNG economy and, and where, where things are expanding, it's actually been in this non-mineral sector where we've seen the most progress over the last decade as they've sought out these new markets across the world. This is interesting, I think, too, as, as I'll come back to again in, in terms of the, the focus of the PNG government in where it should put its priorities for trade relationships and the development of trade relationships. The, the O'Neill government has placed a very big focus on forming closer relationships with its Asian partners. It has 220 million Indonesians sitting right on its border and rightfully they're placing a big focus on, on strengthening the trade linkages between those two countries. I think they, they recently just came back from, I think, the first trade mission in, in a very long time between Indonesia and PNG, which is great to see that sort of progress coming. Also, the Thai Prime Minister coming to PNG is another big coup for the country. And I think continuing to progress those relationships throughout Asia is a hugely beneficial thing for the PNG economy and the rural agricultural dwellers in their ability to access these markets. Second point I think to make is that when we as development economists talk about creating inclusive growth in PNG, we should always be thinking about agricultural and non-mineral products in terms of creating employment opportunities for, for the PNG population. And this is a, a well-made point and, and I won't dwell on it, but I will just, just highlight. So what, uh, what some previous uh, presenters have focused on has been a big increase in employment in the PNG economy over the last decade. Some of that has been from structural reforms. But a large part of it has just been increasing output from the agriculture, forestries and fisheries sector. And, and what this chart here shows is the total employment growth in PNG over the last decade, and then the total employment growth in agriculture, forestries and fisheries. And as you can see, they're very closely aligned. What goes on in this sector drives the country as a whole. So we can't underestimate its importance to, to driving future improvements in, in welfare across PNG. So I'll finish up um, with a... Uh, with a third conclusion, and, and that is that although there has been progress in diversifying, um, I guess, PNG's export markets and expanding those markets, PNG fundamentally remains an exporter of primary commodities, and that is true both for the mineral products that it has, it adds very little value to them before exporting, as well as the agricultural products that it has. They're all very basic stage once they're exporting. What this uh, line here shows is, is an index. It's, it's somewhat complicated. It's calculated by some economists at MIT and Harvard, but it, it provides a, a way of measuring the, the complexity of an economy based on the, uh, the composition of its exports. And basically what it tries to do is to measure the diversity of exports. So 
for sort of a range of products that country exports, but also what they term the ubiquity of products. And that is uh, essentially the rareness of those products and, and the inherent value added in the products that are being exported. And, and what it shows, it's out of 128 countries that they calculate this index for. And it shows that, that since the sort of independence period right up until now, PNG is, is actually, I think, second or third last in the world or in this country grouping in terms of the complexity of its exports. And uh, I guess just to finish up, I'll, I'll borrow a phrase that our, our president recently delivered to the PNG government when he was here uh, earlier this week. And that was that if PNG is going to truly develop, it has to be more than an exporter of just primary commodities. It has to develop the value chains and it, and it has to sort of be adding more value to its products if we're really going to sort of boost the country up to a middle income status. But I'll finish with that. Thank you. Thank you also for um, a very expeditious presentation. That's terrific. Uh, our next speaker is, is Margaret Cowan. It probably doesn't need to be introduced to too many of you. Margaret is currently a visiting, a visiting fellow at the Development Policy Centre here at the Crawford School. But in an earlier incarnation, she was the Assistant Director General in AusAid, responsible for the PNG program. So she's had a long association with PNG. Her research interests particularly focus on the role of the private sector in development in the region with a specific focus on mining. So, over to you, Margaret. Thanks very much. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, what I'd like to present to you today is a summary of some research I've been undertaking over about the past 15 months. So um, I'm not looking at the macroeconomic um, effects of mining companies. I'm looking very much at, at a microeconomic level. Um, mining companies in Papua New Guinea are frequently cited as important contributors to national development, and many have publicly committed to this objective. I'd just like to run through some of the public statements of the four big mining companies. So from Barrick with Gold, we have, we are committed to making a positive difference in the communities in which we live and work. Newcrest, a bit more, a bit higher level. We aim to bring enduring net benefits to the communities and countries in which we operate. Oil search, much more specific. Our aim is to leave a long-term legacy of improved sustainable development opportunities in all the areas where oil search operates. And Octeni, even further again, we are successful when we are making positive social and economic contributions to PNG, the Western Province and the North Flower. So these are pretty big <coughs> expectations that uh, the companies have built up. What I wanted to do was to quantify the contribution of these four major mining and petroleum projects to Papua New Guinea's development and I set out to find information that it would allow me to describe, measure and evaluate their contributions. What I was looking for was information about their inputs, their expenditure on activities and programs that could make a development impact, their outputs, what they delivered, to whom, and evidence of their outcomes, any resulting changes in economic and social development. I deliberately set out to use as the principal source of data for this case study the annual reporting published by the companies. Like most multinational companies, all of these companies have endorsed the Global Reporting Initiative Framework 
for corporate social responsibility and, res and sustainability reporting. That framework sets out principles and performance indicators for corporate economic, environmental and social performance. The framework provides a menu of indicators from which companies can choose ones they regard as relevant to their operations. So from these GRI indicators, I selected these uh, the indicators listed here as the most relevant for assessing the development contributions of the case study companies. I added the infrastructure tax credit scheme to the list as a PNG specific indicator whereby companies receive a tax credit for approved infrastructure investments. So the core business, I divided the indicators into core business indicators, payments to government, um, that's mostly uh, royalties um, and taxation, payments to landowners, communities and development authorities, value of procurement from local businesses, the wages paid to locally hired labour, and I sought um, numbers of locally hired workers as well. And for the community contributions, I wanted to find out the value and the type of co corporate community programs, the government-funded infrastructure spending that the um, companies um, deliver on, and the benefits from, um, from these programs. Um, not all of the companies reported all of this data for, um, for all of the years that I was interested in. I tried to get data for three years, 2009, 10 and 11. So um, in my table of findings, um, I've, I've noted where I have data from only two or three companies. There was also some ambiguities in the coverage of the data. That's an understatement, I have to tell you. In particular, though, there were overlapping payments, uh, overlapping data about payments to communities and for corporate community programs. So again, I just did my best to, to sort these out. I also assumed that the corporate payments to the national government, which uh, have been agreed to be redistributed by the national government back to provincial, district and local level government, I assumed that they were indeed redistributed and received um, at those levels. So I collected data for the three years, 9, 10 and 11, um, wherever it was available, and I averaged that data to smooth the fluctuations over the period, and I converted all um, US and Australian dollar data into PNG Kina. So the first table, um, this is a table of, of results. So you'll see that the, um, the largest two categories are um, payments to the national government. This is taxes, royalties, dividends and, and other payments to the national government. Hot on heels of that, and that's only three companies reporting there, was the procurement of services from, from suppliers in PNG. And I divided that into the landowner and, and joint venture companies, um, other PNG owned companies and PNG joint ventures with foreign companies and other PNG suppliers. Then payments uh, to development authorities and trusts, of which PNG STP is a very large uh, part, and I'll talk about that later. Uh, landowners and communities community trusts and programs uh, and donations, remuneration to PNG nationals, provincial and local governments and infrastructure. So I've got a pie chart which will come to and I'll leave that up there while I, I go through these in, in some detail. Um, the data that I collected on, on workforce numbers reinforces some of the points that Aaron was making. The um, mining sector is a small employer. 
um, but um, most of the um, employees are PNG nationals. Very small percentage are expatriates. And also, if you look at the split between the mine area and the rest of PNG, it's about 50-50. So the mining companies clearly are committed to and do deliver on their agreements with communities that they'll, um, they'll employ locals. So if we just go to the pie chart, which I think is easier to follow than that messy table, and I'll, um, I'll just sort of look at this data and try to tease out what I think we can learn from the data about the corporate contributions to development. So in terms of Kina value, the largest potential contribution to PNG's development is clearly the taxes and their other statutory payments to the national government. These payments were equivalent to 17% of all national government revenues during the period. But unless the national government allocates and spends these resources effectively to provide basic services to citizens, their development potential will remain unrealised. And we've already heard earlier this morning about some of the major challenges with service delivery in PNG. If we look at the um, company procurement of services from national suppliers, they're also very large. Over one-third of this is from the local landowner companies or from other PNG companies or PNG joint ventures with foreign companies. In principle, this should represent a significant contribution to local and national development. However, we know little about how national procurement translates through to development benefits. What we would need to understand more about that is more research to identify who the providers of, of services are through the supply chain and then the social distribution of that procurement spending, for example, by gender, location and ethnicity. If we move down to the next category now, which is the payments to development authorities and trusts. As you can see, PNG Sustainable Development is by far the largest of these. And as the 63% owner, currently that is, we're not sure about the future, but as the 63% owner of Octeti Mining, it's in a different category from the other, um, the other development authorities and trusts. An independent evaluation of um, PNG SDP in 2012 described several worthwhile infrastructure investments by PNG SDP, but noted the broader conclusions about its development contributions were not possible because of a lack of evaluation information. The Octeti Development Foundation, which manages some of OTML payments for community programs, it published its first annual report in 2012, so it wasn't relevant to the data I was collecting but the report covered all of its programs and financial statements reasonably comprehensively, so I think that's, a, that's promising. However, the development organisations associated with the Porgara and Lahia projects do not publish reports. This failure represents a serious gap in the information available about the activities of development authorities and trusts funded through payments from resource companies. If we move on to the next... Um, the next uh, largest payment, which is the cash payments of compensation and royalties to landowners and communities. There's only been one quantitative study of their economic and social development benefits, which was sponsored by the ADB, and there, although there have been several qualitative studies and anecdotal evidence. All of these studies suggest that a relatively small share of the payments is invested in health, education or agricultural and other enterprises. 
At the same time, they indicate the benefits improve when companies make these payments into family bank accounts to which women have access. Um, the data on the um, employment of um, PNG nationals, um, three companies, sorry, only two of the four case study companies published data on the remuneration play to national and local employees and they show that there's a very big uh, discrepancy in the sense that most of the international employees are highly skilled and most of the national employees uh, fall into the semi-skilled or unskilled category. So the distribution of employment is very different from the distribution of remuneration paid. Three of the companies provide data on numbers of employees from the local area and other parts of PNG, and only one disaggregates the national data by gender and skill level. So we learn a little but not very much about the employment by companies. So while mining is not usually a big direct employer, except in the construction phases of projects, as we've learnt from the PNG LNG project, it provides employees with training and skills and also generates indirect employment through the suppliers. Moreover, workers come from outside, who come from outside the area um, remit uh, significant sums to their home communities. And I think that Colin Filer has done quite a lot of interesting work on this for this year's, um, the 2013 World Development Report, which I hope we'll see published um, very soon. Um, further studies, for example, to assess the so social distribution of employment by skill level, um, gender, ethnicity and location, would shed more light on the development impact of employment generated by mining and petroleum. The annual payments by the four companies to community trust, community programs and donations amounted to 176 million kina. So that's the next category. Um, um, while this sum is modest compared with their tax payments and procurement, it is nonetheless a significant potential contribution to development in PNG's provinces and districts. And it amounts to 36 million kina more than the companies paying dividends and royalties to provincial and local governments. Corporate reporting on their community contributions tends to include descriptions and stories about activities implemented. While many reports also include some useful data on particular activities, few provide data across all areas of community programs and it is not usual for reports to provide data on the same indicators consistently from year to year. So one can gain a good overview of the types of programs supported and data on services being delivered in certain areas, for example, number of people accessing health facilities or the names of the roads and bridges that are maintained, but it proved impossible to calculate a reasonably accurate estimate of the breakdown of expenditure by sector or of the numbers of people benefiting from services in a particular sector. Nonetheless, we can be confident from the reporting available um, what the main focus areas are for, for company um, community programs. So a very big category is infrastructure and particularly transport infrastructure, but also um, education, health, community, power supplies, water supply and sewerage infrastructure. Um, health is a very important um, and large focus for corporate programs, education and small business development and rural livelihoods. It seems to me that in reporting on their community programs, companies seem to be in the same position as aid agencies were a few years back. Most report their inputs to development, fewer report on outputs and very few attempt to measure outcomes. 
The sort of information that would be useful to assess their contributions to development would be, for example, what proportion of the population is served by the infrastructural services provided. Are these services making any difference to the health or education or income indicators for, for the populations? We know little about the sorts of pictures we saw this morning when the companies build new infrastructure. Are there teachers in the schools? Are there books? Are there supplies in the health centres? Are there doctors? We don't know any of that information. In general, though, health is an important exception to the general pattern in, in relation to public information. Two of the case study companies, Oil Search Limited and OTML, have significant health programs and provide reporting on them using PNG's own health information system indicators. Oil Search publishes this data directly. It started doing that just over the last two years. Um, while reporting on OTML's health programs is through the commercial contractor, JTA, which publishes itself the annual progress reports and the periodic independent evaluations. So for both of these mining projects, it'll be possible over the medium term to assess the contribution of the companies to health in their areas. The other case study companies from time to time sponsor independent research on their development impact, which this is published mainly in academic journals or through research, research networks of NRI, um, INA, ANU and other academic institutions. Health is a frequent focus for independent researchers and many studies provide evidence that company health programs have achieved significant improvements in immunisation rates, nutrition, antenatal care, medical supervision of births and the incidence of malaria and filariasis. At the same time, independent researchers have also documented the negative impacts from resource projects and very significant negative impacts for affected populations, including increased crime, family and sexual violence and loss of livelihoods, particularly for women. So what do we conclude from this, um, this data and this information? I guess I have four, four areas where I'd like to attempt a conclusion. First one, not too difficult. It took a lot of time and effort poring over company reports and seeking clarification and additional information from companies and other sources for me to be able to extract just the limited data I've presented here. It's hard to understand why it should be this difficult, particularly in light of public statements by, public, by resource companies and governments asserting the development benefits of investments in mining and petroleum. Further, the data that was easiest to obtain covers financial flows, but they tell us little about development contribution. Without information on how the funds are spent and who benefits, we know little about the development impact. I think companies already collect some potentially useful information of this sort, but they may need more expertise in data verification and analysis, as well as leadership from their management executives before they can publish more and better data. My third conclusion is to do with the health as an important exception. Studies in the project areas provide evidence of improved population health as a result of corporate programs that work closely with national, provincial, local service providers and churches, and in recent years also with international development organisations. The experience in health may provide a model for corporate programs in other sectors such as transport infrastructure and education, 
both of which are a major focus for the resource companies. Finally, all of mining and petroleum companies are required to report regularly to the Department of Environment and Conservation on the socio-economic impact of their projects. But the department has set no guidelines for these reports, does not provide any response to them, and does not publish them. I think the Chamber of Mines and Petroleum in PNG could make an important contribution to transparency and accountability in the country by doing three things. Number one, come up with a standard format for members' reports with clear information about payments and programs. Publish these reports and disseminate them widely. Thank you very much. Thank you, Margaret. Um, our third speaker this afternoon is Billy Minoka. Billy is currently the Commissioner and CEO of PNG's Independent Consumer and Competition Commission. He was formerly the an Associate Professor and Head of the Economics Department at the University of Papua New Guinea. And like quite a few other people, he also has a degree from ANU, from the precursor to the Crawford School, the old National Centre for Development Studies. So thanks very much, Billy. Uh, thank you, Chair. And may I extend this, uh, my uh, gratitude to uh, Stephen for extending the invitation to the Commission to uh, make a presentation and to be part of the discussion on, uh, I, I might say, uh, problems that, that are never ending uh, in Papua New Guinea. And uh, <clears throat> this is one of the problems that I'm going to discuss today uh, in the work that we do at the Commission. Just by way of uh, the type of work we do, our counterpart here is ACCC. Uh, we deal with uh, market conduct rules. Uh, and consumer protection work. And the con consumer protection work goes beyond uh, uh, weights and measures, that's uh, trade measurement, and we also calibrate uh, uh, taxi meters. And we also have a regulatory role, the three core functions, and we regulate uh, uh, declared uh, goods and services. Uh, the SOEs come under the declared services. And I'm going to focus more on the uh, SOEs, state-owned enterprises that we have regulatory contracts with. That's um, PNG Power, what the PNG, sorry, PNG Power, Post PNG, uh, PNG Ports, and MVIL. Motor vehicle insurance. How do I operate this? Okay. Uh, when I joined the commission in 2008 as a commissioner, uh, one of the things that uh, struck me was the use of the building block model, the regulatory instrument that we use to set tariffs. And it, it occurred uh, immediately to me that uh, we had a serious problem. Uh, and, and the reason why we have increasing uh, tariffs every year and increasing price part. But before I come to that, uh, let me just go through uh, the, uh, a couple of problems. I'll, I'll, I'll focus more on the three, three problems. And the, I'll, I'll come to uh, the building block model uh, under problem three. We have five-year regulatory contracts with the uh, four entities that I, I, I mentioned. And uh, the, the model that is used, which is part of the regulatory contract, 
is uh, the building block model. And I'll, I'll come, I'll discuss more, uh, I'll, I'll come to more details on the, on the model itself and the problem tree. So we have legally binding uh, contracts with these uh, state-owned enterprises that uh, defines responsibilities on our part and res responsibilities on their part. And uh, we, once we sign off on the contracts, we are bound to, uh, we are bounded to those, con to those contracts and we can't deviate but from them. The only way to deviate is by agreement with the uh, state-owned enterprises. <clears throat> What's, what's, what we have experienced is that the SOEs tend to game us. Okay, they've got uh, the money to spend on lawyers and uh, uh, people uh, who are uh, familiar with uh, uh, tariff setting uh, to game us. So that uh, for us, the cost of litigation becomes a real issue. And this is something that we have been uh, discussing with uh, Treasury to set aside funding at least five million kina a year, not for us to, uh, to not direct allocation to IPPC, but set aside to uh, deal with uh, litigation costs. As I said, uh, one of the things I realized when I got on the uh, commission was that uh, it occurred to me that the building block model was not really incentive-based regulation, uh, and something that we discussed with ACCC. I made known to ACCC uh, in our meeting uh, on Tuesday. There's no incentives, no incentive on the part of the regulated entity to, to reduce cost. And I'll come to that when I'll show you an example, a, a hypothetical example on how the tariffs are set. So the, real, the, the incentive is on the, is on the uh, regulated entity to, to continue to increase uh, capital expenditure. Uh, and we have no oversight of our operating expenditure, and operating expenditure has been uh, increasing over time. The way the regulatory contracts are, 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 have been set uh, does not, because the, the building block model is not in, uh, incentive-based, uh, it does not encourage the way the contracts are set does not encourage the uh, regulated entity to, to become efficient. There's, there's no penalty, penalty uh, penalties in the regulatory contracts to make them uh, to become efficient. The only uh, reward that the incentive is mainly on their part. When they spend the money on the capital expenditure, we award them the uh, price increase. So the tariff increases. We have no oversight over OPEX, and OPEX has been increasing uh, over time. As I said earlier, the building block model doesn't address the issue of efficiency. The reason why we regulate uh, SOEs is because uh, they are monopolies. They, they provide essential services which are provided by just uh, themselves. So the question I ask is, is, is the building block an incentive-based uh, approach? And clearly, to the commission, it is not. And, and those uh, responsible for, uh, for the use of this model, we've had uh, extensive debates on this, on this matter. And as I said earlier, 
the incentive is mainly on the part of the uh, regulated energy to continue to increase uh, costs so that they are awarded uh, price increases. Now, the, in the regulatory contracts, we have a five-year price path. Five-year price path. So before we sign off on the contract, they submit their capex plans, capital expenditure plans. I think one of the things that we have to really do well is to uh, hire uh, qualified engineers, uh, expert engineers who, who are experts on ports, who are experts on uh, power, and the other utilities to really uh, dig down deeper on the capital expenditure plans and, and advise us accordingly. So as you can see, uh, this is really the outcome of uh, the financial model that is used. And that's, that's really the outcome. Uh, do, do we have a lighter pointer? Can I use a pointer? That why it's called a uh, building block model is that there are three building blocks. That's the OPEX, return of capital is depreciation. So we allow them uh, to end, uh, end that through the uh, prices that we set. So that, that the idea behind that is to allow them to uh, maintain the, the assets. And the return of capital. And the return on capital is based on the regulatory asset base. Now, the state-owned enterprises earn two types of revenue. Revenue on the regulated assets and revenue on the non-regulated assets. Now, if you look at some of them, the revenue they generate on the non-regulated assets are far higher than the uh, revenue they earn, earn on the uh, uh, regulated assets. So it makes me wonder why they are not able to uh, find the necessary resources within to uh, do the catch-up work. <coughs> the years of neglect on their, on the, on their infrastructure. <coughs> So if you add one, two, and four, you come up with five. Okay? So that's the revenue required. So based on the annual uh, demand forecast, if you divide 300 by 200, you get the tariff. Okay, this is just a hypothetical example in, in the power sector. So if you divide five by the annual demand, then you get the tariff. This is done in such a way that, uh, that you, you, you will not see the, the, uh, why I, I, I make the point that this is not incentive-based regulation. <coughs> this one here. Okay. What I've done in this table is the, is the reproduction of the previous table. What I've done is I've increased the OPEX. I've done, what I've done is I've increased the OPEX, but everything else is the same. Notice what's happened to the tariff. Uh, so when I became CEO in 2010, one of the first briefs that I received from my technical staff was a brief on uh, PNG power, uh, sorry, PNG ports tariffs for the coming year. And what struck me was the, the, exp the exponential nature of the increase. So I wrote a comment on the, uh, on the brief and returned it to the staff and, and tried to uh, and asked them to explain to me 
why that was the case. And, and, and at that time, I was not really fully familiar with this model. Sorry. I was not really fully familiar with this model. I heard about it in 2008 and 9, but was not fully familiar with it. He tried to explain this to me, but I said, look, there's something wrong here. Uh, so the message I want to bring here is that uh, there's, no, there's no incentive for them to reduce cost. Even look at demand. If you look at uh, the SOEs, they have not created new demand. They have not, for, for example, PNG Power has, the last time I, they went into rural electrification was many years ago, many, many years ago. So notice, notice what's happening here. If you increase demand, what, what happens to the tariff? It goes down. If, the, if, if they give us a demand focus that is increasing, then the tariff goes down. So it's not in the in the best interest to uh, increase demand. If they if they want to give us a forecast uh, demand that is increasing, they, it's it's in, in their interest to increase the uh, cost components here, so that the revenue required increases, and the tariff the resultant uh, outcome is the increasing tariff uh, price part. Sorry. So the. What's been happening is that all, in all the regulatory contracts, the commission has been granting an increasing price part over the five-year regulatory period. Uh, now we are resetting uh, the contracts that have expired. I think uh, PNG Power uh, and Post and NBIL. So Winston will touch on what changes we are now undertaking. If you're going to continue to use uh, this, this type type of uh, regulation. So I'll hand over to uh, Winston. Thanks. Um, before actually looking at the kinds of things we're going to do, uh, we should visit uh, Microeconomics 101. No, can't go to the end. Just to the next slide. Uh, to the end of this presentation. Press it all the time. Just use the control. Yeah. Is it one? Yeah. 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 And to put it in context, we have 35 operational staff, whereas the Australian Energy Regulator has got about 178 staff. Now, this is the reason why we're having problems. Um, how do you use this pointer? Um, the uh, economic theory tells us that with increasing scale, you get, sorry, you get efficiency. <laughs> What's happening? This, the the, the, got us. this one is the top one is the laser. Right. Yes, the red one. Okay. Uh, well, I won't bother the pointer. Uh, the the blue, blue rectangle tells us that. Which one? Okay. Uh, the uh, uh, yellowish rectangle 
tells us that it reduced the quantities, and that can give you the price increase that might be a deliberate strategy of monopolies. Um, the efficiency gain in the brownish color, in any case, even in a private monopoly, is transitory. And it's often dissipated among management. But the key point is that whatever efficiency gains you get has a redistributional effect from consumers to suppliers. And it involves a deadweight loss. In SOEs, this problem is much more exacerbated because the limited incentive for efficiency that's there in a private monopoly is just not there in an SOE. Uh, they get paid their salaries, they're appointed by ministers, they, as long as they're in the minister's good books, they know they won't be sacked. Uh, as uh, Billy's mentioned earlier, they jack up their capex and opex and they get compensated for it. So that's a brief outline of the lack of incentives. And uh, I've talked about this with Matt. Matt has a somewhat different framework about incentives and so on. And maybe we'll have an opportunity to discuss and exchange views on there sometime. But from our practical experience, we've found that there's very little incentive for efficiency. Now, going up to the uh, uh, problems, and as far as time permits, we'll explore what problems uh, we've faced. And we'll just shut off whenever time runs out. And we'll tell you what we've tried to do. With uh, The key problem is we've inherited these regulatory contracts. They were signed by the Minister for Treasury before the Commission came into existence. Uh, the power contract has a 10-year duration, and we are now looking at reviewing it. And we are trying to tighten it up wherever we can. Uh, we're looking into demand estimation and reserving the right to revisit that. Uh, I won't worry about any more graphs, I'll just go to the issues. Too quick. It's taking a long way to go. Keep going, keep going. Uh, veracity of information. There was no requirement for them to substantiate the information they gave us. We're tightening up on that. Statutory declaration by the CEO, audited financial statements, etc. Service standards. Some of the examples of service standards in post, for example, is best endeavors. How do you measure and enforce that? <laughs> for for PNG ports, provide adequate berthing and hard stand facilities. They reckon that demand is static in PNG ports, yet ships are queuing up for weeks and the customers are paying port congestion surcharges. Uh, PNG Power has some KPIs about connection. Uh, penalties for rebates and so on. I won't dwell on that for lack of time. The SOE can introduce new services and we can't regulate them. They claim that they're not regulated services because a contract says A, B, and C are regulated services. So we can do what we want. In fact, they are monopoly services. We can't touch them during the contract. They increase charges for pilotage by 327%. There has been no control over procurement procedures. The OECD has put out a paper saying that procurement is one of the largest areas of corruption in government and is a significant contributor to poverty. And that's one of the reasons why there isn't a tide that raises all boats. You can't have a, such a tide with macroeconomic reform and terrific macro figures without effective microeconomic policy. The two are the two sides of the same coin. 
To get effective development and address poverty, you need both. We're typing up on this, very strict provisions now in the power contract about procurement. In a couple of days, papers ago, uh, the governor of the Northern Province, Gary Jufa, he complained that previously, PNG Power would buy their fuel from the original supplier. The new contract has an intermediary in it. You've got to ask why, when the price of, of fuel is an IPP price supplied by a government granted monopoly provider. That's bad enough, and then you interpose an intermediary in the equation. You've got to ask why. Uh, we've touched on this before. Concessional loans. Uh, we had a water, we have a water supplier, Edoranu. ADB, not ADB, JICA provided it with a fantastic concessional loan for the Port Moresby sewerage upgrade system. Uh, I was in Treasury at the time, and we were concerned that the regulatory arrangements, and they're not under a contract, they're under a Price Regulation Act uh, system, which is very similar. There's no reason to adjust the, the prices and charges that we allow them by reason of the fact that they get a concessional loan. To me, that's double-dipping. Now, this building block model that Billy has raised serious concerns about, we're looking at the problems and trying to address them. But it's an incremental approach. And we are throwing open for consideration. We're starting to give it some thought. We don't know the answers to it, and one size won't fit all. But let's look at really um, root and branch reform. These are all the problems. <laughs> um, uh, desperate situations, desperate remedies, drastic remedies are required. Um, what's, what about looking at things like removing the monopoly? If you're a natural monopoly, you don't need legislative protection. It's almost a Occam's razor kind of thing. Why are they given protection? And the classic theory of monopoly is that uh, anyone wanting your services, they'll have to make the judgment about build or buy. Right? And if the monopoly is so inefficient, it's better to put down two sets of wires or pipelines or whatever than to pay the monopolist his price. I think my time's run out. So, well, we're just throwing this in. We're doing some work on this. It's very embryonic, but we're taking a lateral approach, looking at things that uh, we haven't thought of before, and maybe the regulatory system should go and look at completely different ways of of uh, looking at things, but they're not within our power. They're all within the control of the government. And <clears throat> thank you very much. That's the end of the presentation. And Winston, it's, um, I suppose it's a bit sad that we had another set of depressing stories about economic management in the country. Uh, now we're open to questions. We've got about just on 15 minutes, and we'll do it the same way. We'll take groups of three questions, please. So. Yeah, um, I, I sort of divided into one with um, Margaret's number. She had. I can't remember a total for all those things, but uh, <coughs> I think it would come to a very high proportion of the national economy uh, that that Aaron was mentioning. So I was just wondering what that was. But more, more basically, um, um, Winston, I think, could tell us what happens when you get a competitor into the situation he's talking about, and perhaps that could be 
be discussed because I think that's quite significant and he didn't get that far. So, another question? Yeah, so um, David from Moldova, I've got a question for Margaret. Uh, and the issue of family information is such a problem, not just in mining sector, but across the board, but focus on your presentation. Has your work or will your work uh, factor in uh, the impact of PNG implementing the Extractive Industry Transparency Initiative? And I, I do make the comment on um, when I do look at the data that you have on revenue to government and revenue to the and, and payments to the trust, they do seem to be very low based on um, based on the size of the broad revenue, um, a size of revenue to the to the government, and also the size of the PNG Sustainable Development Programs um, holding in the long term fund. So I'd just be interested to hear if you've uh, thought about the EITI and what that means for PNG. Uh, a question for Margaret. With, with, your, um, with your study and with um, Peter Baxter mentioning OZ's um, shift towards more, more cooperation with the private sector, have you, do you know from your study what that, what that private sector uh, cooperation would look like? That's a pretty good start. We'll take those three questions to begin with and then come to some more. So, um, Margaret, would you like to go first? Yeah, okay, thanks very much. Um, just clarification for the, the first question. I think the number you're interested in, I calculated that those taxes and other statutory payments to the national government were equivalent to 17% of, of all national government revenue from the period. So was that the... Yeah, well, when you add everything else, payments to local villages and everything, it comes up to much more than that. Yeah, you we do. And everything in your pot. Yeah, it, yeah. It, I think it becomes very significant in terms of the economy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, um, David, yeah, the impact of EITI reporting on those information flows. Well, um, just on the information available, um, I think it would be very positive because <coughs> it would, uh, it, if... if um, PNG were to implement EITI, there has to be an agreement about the way companies will report and the way government will report. So you will get some clarification and it'll be in the interest of the, of the companies to make sure that there's not overlapping ca categories, that they're very clear on the categories. I noticed that um, oil searches um, report this year was called an accountability and responsibility report, and they reported as though it was an EITI report. So they actually, you know, have taken that step. And I think other companies are, are very interested in it. Companies in general are interested in it. Um, and I, I don't know whether they've thought through that that also means that some of those other payments, the fact that they're not very large, might become more obvious. But, but that's an interesting point, because I did hear some feedback from... Um, <coughs> Porgra, so there was a the really interesting study on um, flow, financial flows from Porgra that was um, published by NRI, and apparently there were quite a lot of um, local trusts and landowner groups that weren't at all happy that those numbers were public, <coughs> the, the, poor, you know, the low levels of, of flows and lack of information on what had happened to them, but I heard that caused quite a few problems for the company. Um, on the question on AusAid's uh, cooperation with the private sector, what would it look like? Um, there may, hopefully there's someone from AusAid here who could, who could actually answer that question. The only 
um, activities that I'm aware of in, in terms of sort of specific proposals um, are that I, I know that um, AusAid is, is certainly has been looking at um, providing um, funding support, I assume, <coughs> to, to some of the companies to extend some of the health services they're already providing, either to take them to different areas or to do more of them. But um, I didn't, I didn't, wasn't able to get any specific information on that. But I don't know if you, David, or anyone else, um, has got any information on the partnerships of the private sector and PNG. Yeah, well, well, there is information on the website about it, and, but I don't have specific details. Okay, so it's on the website. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. Right. Okay. Thanks, Thanks. Julie or Winston. Do you want to answer the question about the impacts of reducing introducing competition? Well, uh, and this refers to a point that the same gentleman raised a while ago about lots of reports this high. Uh, in Port Moresby, we say in the local parlance, we don't need any more reports to gather dust in Waigani. Uh, there, there are homegrown experiences, which admittedly were based on other countries' experiences, which we can learn from. I mean, the example of mobile competition is spectacular, the transformative effect it had. Uh, and yet there was considerable debate about it and so on. So in areas, in other SOEs, wherever competition can be introduced, uh, it begs the question, why, don't, why doesn't the government do that? Let, let me just chime in here. Uh, for example, uh, power. Uh, we can easily introduce competition on, on generation uh, and retail. Uh, PNG Power can just uh, own transmission. And in fact, I think we are heading in that direction. Uh, we are going to uh, soon have a second hydro in uh, Port Mosby area. Uh, it's narrow brown, I think. And uh, that will be operated by an IPP. So as we speak, uh, uh, IPPC is in, in partnership with the World Bank to design an access regime. Uh, so at least in power, we are heading in that direction. Uh, for ports, I think we can introduce competition. Uh, and competition does not necessarily mean it players being in one geographic area. For example, uh, uh, ports, port most port can be privatized. Or, or, you know, management has its own management. Layport can have its own privatized or it has its own management. And they compete for ships to, to dock. Uh, and we can learn from New Zealand what's happened in New Zealand. Recently, we've had a visit from uh, Richard Preble, uh, former uh, MP of uh, New Zealand. He was, he, when he, was, when he uh, first entered politics, he was appointed as the minister for... Uh, 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 state-owned enterprises in New Zealand, and he, he introduced competition, even in post. So there's one country that we can learn from, and he, he, uh, he was invited by Minister Ben Micah uh, to uh, share New Zealand's experience with uh, Papua New Guinea. And I think we are heading in the direction. Okay, thank you. So, any questions? Yeah. <coughs> Just seems that there's, there's a very interesting sort of combined story mining companies, although there isn't very much data, are delivering some services in some areas. And we've heard in the previous presentations that perhaps there's some of the only people delivering certain services. On the other hand, we've heard the story about competition and uh, difficulty with sort of the current uh, sort of monopolies over service delivery, which may have an impact on, on Aaron's point about the lack of value add uh, being done in country. It's very difficult to do that. You don't have 
for the uh, some of the government sort of services to provide that. I wonder if that that sort of combined story uh, raises the question of whether the government really should be just sort of opening up a lot of its service delivery to competition outside of the government sector, not just in the SOE sector, but potentially in things like health and education. So really taking a a sort of open competitive tender approach where you could have uh, donors uh, uh, providing it, you could have the PNG government, certain departments say yes we will do this, or you could have mining companies uh, provide. And that contract management could either be done in PNG by the PNG government or some of it uh, could be done through donors or, or NGOs or other organisations, having the churches more involved. And just really kind of taking that competitive approach you're talking about Applying across the board, I was interested in any comments. Uh, thank you. I just wanted to ask one question and, and uh, to make a comment. I guess the, I found the well, they're all interesting, but the only the, your presentation, the only thing I thought was if they if you're giving them all this incentive to do more capex, you should get a lot of capex, but there's still big power shortages. I understand, right? So no you're not getting enough capex actually. So I just raised that as a question. I guess for your interesting theories and um, explanations of what's going on. And uh, I guess the, quite, the comment is more, it just seems to me there's a bit of unreality from more competition or privatisation. This is the government and the minister, Ben Micah, with the announcement they're going to abolish IPBC and move to a more corporate holding company. Structure is going the opposite direction. They want to expand the SOE sector and move away from privatisation, away from competition, to a very big dominant SOE sector. And if anyone can uh, comment on that, I'd appreciate it. I just have um, a question that was related to the gentleman over mm. here um, in relation to um, public-private partnerships and in relation to PNG's um, recent interaction with capital punishment, for instance, um, and also prisons, which are a big problem for us in Papua New Guinea. Um, is there an opportunity or can you see scope um, for the, um, the privatisation of prisons and for um, the privatisation of services such as... Um, uh, some of the provisions that are provided under these new rules under capital punishment. Okay, then. Nice one. Who? Given that you're involved in the SOE report with the ADB, would you sure. like to look at some of these as well? Uh, um, yeah, a couple of them. I guess uh, Andrew's point on, on open competition, I mean, as, as an economist and someone that's been involved in PNG for a long time, I couldn't agree more. I mean, as, as, as Dr. Minoka mentioned, if, uh, if you can introduce competition, why not? Um, if, if someone else can do it cheaper than the government service provider and expand services free of charge to the government, why not do it? And, uh, and often it's to do with vested interests within those industries, which is the hardest thing to battle. So that's the, the real challenge there. The danger, I think, though, is, is the experience in many developing countries is that when industries perform poorly, uh, they go in the other direction. They create more protection. They cr create more state ownership. Um, and you are seeing some moves towards that in PNG now with reserved industries and and things like that, and I think that's taking the economy in, in the wrong direction. So it's certainly an interesting time in, in PNG's history. Um, in terms of the IPBC question, um, the, the corporatisation of, of IPBC um, isn't necessarily directly linked to the expansion of state-owned enterprises. That, that was actually a recommendation of, of the ADB SOE report. Um, corporatisation of IPBC will actually expose it to greater accountability and transparency mechanisms. It will be required to produce an annual report it will be required to produce a balance sheet with income flows, and that will have to be publicly available, which is not the case at the moment. Um, 
the utilization of that agency and what it's actually going to do with its corporate power is, is a separate question. And I don't that's think that they should question. be. That's right. That's but they shouldn't necessarily be linked. That's right. That's right. And so, well, I mean, I think he has Tamasek in mind. Um, I, I think um, ADB's advice on, on the future of SOEs is very much along the lines of the ICCC, where possible, corporatize and introduce competition to improve efficiency. Where there is a public service being provided that's not profitable, then you define a very clearly stated community service obligation and that there is a grant paid from the budget to deliver that service. And that service can or cannot be provided by the SOE. It could be privatised or it could be not. But it has to be done on a competitive <coughs> basis. Uh, on Stephen's uh, comment, uh, we agree fully it's outside the bailiwick of the IEEC to, to determine those things as purely government policy. And the Temasek problem is actually now um, sort of duplicating itself. Uh, one of the problems with Temasek is you have uh, ministers traveling overseas, seeing something they like and wanting to transplant it in PNG. Now, Singapore, for instance, ranks among the Nordic nations in terms of the Transparency International's uh, index of corruption. <coughs> I mean, PNG ranks about 145th. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew instituted such rigid, robust governance systems uh, that I think we can safely say PNG is a long way from. And to have, and then Singapore is faced with competition from neighboring international providers in almost every sector of its economy. Tourism, airlines, airports, you've got the, you know, Hong Kongs and Malaysias and Thailands and so on, Dubai even. PNG's SOEs don't have those international competitive constraints. Uh, and therefore, transplanting a Temasek model in PNG, you know, you, you have to ask why. And that problem, we produced a report on housing in 2010. We went to the root of the problem. We suggested uh, an elaborate roadmap, sequencing, timing, everything with responsibilities, etc. Uh, the government's now looking at that policy. And already there's talk about a Singapore model of housing. Now I ask you, uh, it's not within our control. We can produce reports, but we can't make, and we shouldn't make, be making government policy. Would anyone like to have a crack at the question about privatizing the prison service? <laughs> You're I'm not sure that I, I can address that question directly, but just in, in, I mean, I think maybe it falls into the same category as the other kind of basic state functions that, that I would, um, the comment I'd have on, certainly on, on your, your comment, Andrew, was that, you know, the providing basic health and education, prison services, you know, law and justice institutions is actually a function of the state. And, of course, they don't have to do it directly. They, could, they can sort of privatise and tender. But I think, I mean, we heard earlier, one of the main problems in PNG is just having adequate funding to deliver these services. So um, privatising, tendering isn't actually going to solve the problem, I don't think. I, I think I prefer to, to sort of look in terms of establish adequate funding and then look at opportunities for more sort of cooperative models of, of service delivery. So there are, I mean, already the churches are part of the government delivery system and I think some mining companies might be prepared to be part of that too. But a mining company is not a health or an education service provider. By default, they do some work in that sector and some of them 
have now set themselves up to be major providers in the sector, but that's only by establishing separate foundations and because otherwise you cannot get the accountability and transparency that you need for, for the tenders because the companies will not provide that all that information that you really need for something like privatising basic services. You've got to establish a separate foundation which can be transparent and accountable. So um, um, I tend to think that a more of a sort of a cooperative model might work, but I know in this country we have a lot of private providers in the prison service, so I suppose I really can't answer that question. Look, I think we've run out of time. Oh, sorry. So if I can just make one last comment. Uh, competition is one option. Of course, there's, there are other, op uh, other options that we can look at. One of them is benchmarking. Uh, and we do this in uh, telecommunications. Telecommunications now with uh, NICTA, <coughs> industry-specific regulator in, uh, in telecommunications. But prior to NICTA, establishment of NICTA, we, we regulated uh, telecommunications. And we, we applied benchmarking in uh, setting uh, in interconnection rates between the uh, competitors. Uh, and I don't see any reason. There are drawbacks to it because uh, uh, it, it, it's like you, you can't avoid it. Uh, you will always end up with the appeals panel. We have an administrative uh, system where you can settle uh, 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 disputes between uh, the regulator and the uh, uh, regulated entity. Uh, I had a graph there, a graph that uh, all economists are uh, familiar with, with the down, downward slope in uh, average cost curve. Uh, my, my problem with the building block model is the average cost curve is the starting point. From there, you set the tariffs. With the benchmarking, we ask the question, what are the efficiency prices? We, we can find a similar port, for example, similar port to Port Mosby, and see what they are, what they are charging. And can we, can we then say that those are the efficiency prices that should be imposed upon PNG ports? If, if they fall below the average cost cap, then there's an incentive for them to reduce their cost. Under the current uh, regime we have, no, it's not possible. Okay, thanks, Billy. Okay. Would you please join me in thanking you?